Well, you can turn your Bibles to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3. You go to Matthew, and then go back left to Malachi, and then left one more to Zechariah. We'll be in the third chapter. Uh, we'll spend a couple of time, a little bit of time here in the first couple of verses of Zechariah 3. Now, I want to preface this uh, little lesson by saying, first of all, that I am not a golfer. I've tried to golf, and I know that pastor, he likes to golf, and I've gone to a couple nice courses, but I honestly cannot golf to save my life at all. I'm just terrible. To me, when you say golf, that means putt-putt, and I'm good. I can do that. But golfing is, uh, my par is like 130 or something like that. It's really bad. (laughs) Anyways, but there's, even though I'm not a golfer, I do know one thing, that there's something truly special, truly significant about the Masters. Have you, you, I'm sure you're all familiar with the Masters term is held every April at Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia. And there's something very special about the Masters. It's, it's, it's almost separate from all the other major championships on the PGA Tour. And I think the one thing that sets the Masters apart is what they call the Green Jacket. Since 1949, the winner of the Masters has been awarded a distinctive green jacket. It's a beautiful Kelly Green sport coat awarded to the winner, the one who defeats the rest of the field. And it's a, a, very, uh, it's a jacket of very special privilege and significance because only members of this club and only winners of this tournament are awarded this gift. And likewise, this jacket symbolizes an honorary membership. So if you win this tournament, you're automatically in. You're into the most pro- one of the most prestigious golf clubs or just clubs in general in the whole nation. It's very exclusive. It's very... Um, um, very exclusive and very prestigious, and now he's in. Now that you win the tournament, you're in. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there are, however, strict rules associated with this green jacket because even though you've won it, it's not really yours. You can only wear it on club ground. So once you come onto the club, you can wear it, except for the champion. So if the last guy who won it, I forget what his name, Johnson, I think he won it. Anyways, he, he can wear it off club grounds if he wants until the next guy wins. But then as soon as you're not the winner anymore, you can only keep it at the club, only at Augusta National. So it's not really yours because there it'll hang forever in a closet just as a dusty green trophy, essentially. But as meager as this award seems to be, I think the symbolism behind it is what is really represented. It represents just the, just the determination and the effort and the energy and, the, and the, um, the time that goes into and the accomplishment of the champion. That's what's truly seen. And that's why every year, hundreds of golfers go to Augusta National and try and win the green jacket. And oftentimes, though, I think that this type of mentality, as if we're chasing a green jacket, that can kind of slip into our Christianity. Sometimes I think we approach our Christian life the same way, as if we're, we're chasing this elusive and phantom green jacket, as if God's salvation is something that we have to earn through our blood, sweat, and tears. But what Zechariah 3 shows us is one of the most important truths in the whole Bible, and that is our spiritual life, our right standing before God, isn't accomplished through our blood, sweat, and tears, but through the blood, and sweat, and tears of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 of Zechariah commences the fourth vision to the prophet Zechariah from the Lord. 
The first uh, through third visions really were encapsulating the, the great spiritual restoration that was going to come upon the nation of Israel. And the fourth vision kind of answers probably some of the natural questions that Zechariah was having. Because he knows that Israel is in a very dark place, full of idolatry and wickedness. And so I'm sure Zechariah was, was just asking himself, how? How can these things be? How has Israel not already condemned themselves forever by all of their rampant filth and iniquity? So therefore, this fourth vision comes in chapter 3. And it comes for two reasons, really. It is one to, to show and to communicate the truth that Israel's restoration, the fulfillment of Israel's restoration, does not rest on their own merits and their own worthiness, but on the worthiness and merits of another. As you can see later in the chapter in verse 8, what uh, is called the branch. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou, thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. That's talking about Jesus. That's who their restoration was going to come from. But the second reason why this was given is to show us that how God might remain infinitely holy even while pardoning sinful, wicked, unholy people. Because to truly see what God, who God is and what God is like, you don't just need to see Him and how He interacts with people who are righteous, but who, people who are unrighteous. That's when you really see who God is. So let's start in verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse 5. Verse 1 of Zechariah 3. And He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments, and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. So what we have here in this scene is, first of all, Joshua. Joshua is not the Joshua with Moses. Joshua is the high priest of the exiled nation of Israel. And he comes back after the exile. And he's serving as the high priest of Israel. And also you have here, as it says in verse um, two, uh, 1, uh, the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ, the second person in the, trilogy, uh, in the Trinity, the sent one of the Father. So when you see angel of the Lord, think Jesus. That's who he is here. And also you have an attendance, as in verse 4, you have this company of angels. And as we can see, they're kind of like the jury. They're kind of standing off to the sidelines, listening to what's going on. And furthermore, the phrase here where it says, standing before, uh, where's that? Verse 1, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Standing before has the idea that either one, Joshua was ministering unto Jesus. He was ministering in heaven. He was performing some of his priestly duties. That, that's, that phrase there in the Hebrew is also used in Deuteronomy 10 and 2 Chronicles 29 in the same, same way. But it can also mean that Joshua was on trial. That he was literally on trial in the courtroom of heaven, standing before the angel of the Lord where he presides as judge. 
Either interpretation, I think, is fair and accurate, and it doesn't really change what goes on in this scene. But I think that the idea that, that Joshua is on trial has further support by just where Satan was standing. Look at it again. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Now, Satan standing at his right hand comes from also Psalm 109.6, which says, Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan, which is also interpreted the adversary, stand at his right hand. Now, that place, that spot, the right hand was supposed to be the spot where the prosecutor would stand. So this guy is taking charge of Joshua. He's bringing charges against the high priest. And literally, Satan here it comes from the Hebrew, which means the accuser or the adversary. So it's literally, he's standing before Jesus with the accuser standing right next to him. And Satan is bringing charges against him. So imagine, if you will, I'm sure you're familiar with courtroom drama. They have like a ton of them on TV, and to me they're all the same, and so I don't watch them. But they all are so similar that you can probably imagine one from your favorite TV show or movie or whatever, and you have the, the prosecutor, and then you have the judge standing before him, and, and it's just really, it's really exciting, and usually courtrooms are not really like that, but this one is in this show you're watching, and it's really, it's really an intense. And in this courtroom drama, Jesus himself is the judge. He's the magistrate of heaven, and Joshua stands as the defendant, and Satan himself is there as the prosecutor. And now, the words of Satan's argument aren't really given. You don't have Satan listing out all these charges, but it can be inferred by verse 3. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Filthy garments implies guilt and shame, and it implies sin and wickedness. It was the guilt and shame that was upon Joshua, both for his own sins and also for the sins of the people of Israel whom he was representing as the high priest. And Satan's motive here is not just malice against Joshua, it's not just, it's just his evil intent against God's people, but it was also his intense hatred of God and his desire really to, to frustrate and to mess up the plans of God and his plans of grace. Our adversary, the devil, only endeavors to remind us of our guilt and shame. That's what he was doing here. He was saying, do you think that you can be forgiven? Look at what you're wearing. You're wearing filthy garments. He only desires to haunt us with our past, with our past sins, with our shortcomings. And just as he did here with Joshua, Satan assaults every believer with remorse and regret. Satan's greatest weapon against God's children is to persuade us that we're not forgiven. Satan's greatest weapon is to try and get you to doubt God's grace. To get you to believe that, not only that, that God's grace is conditional. That you can't even come before Him without trying to improve yourself or trying to make yourself look better before you come to the throne room of God. That's what he's trying to get you to do. That his grace, he's trying to get you to believe that his grace must be earned or bought or, or won somehow through some sort of self-effort as if it's a green jacket. He's trying to make you see that if he can get you to doubt the certainty of grace, he can get you to stumble. I like this. Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons. He said that ifs are Satan's bombshells. If he can, if, if this, if, if... He's trying to get you to doubt God. Doubt His Word. So 
So there stands Joshua before the bar of God, representing the nation of Israel, waiting for the judge and the accuser to rule on his fate, with Satan the adversary waiting to just deal out a swift, unapologetic verdict of condemnation. And as he stands in the place of the nation, if, if, if Joshua is rejected, then Israel is rejected. If he is accepted, then the nation of Israel is accepted. And the remarkable fact, I think, about this text is that, one, Satan's words aren't given, but regardless of that, Jesus rebuts and rebukes Satan's arguments automatically. Look at verse 2 again. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, and even the Lord, uh, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? You know, Joshua stands there as truly, fully guilty. He's dressed in filthy garments. Whatever charges that Satan was bringing before the Lord here, Joshua was indeed guilty of them. He was a lawbreaker. Even though he was serving as the high priest, he was a human being with flesh and blood like us. He was a sinner. He was guilty. He was a criminal. And he deserved the condemnation that, that Satan brought. Jesus didn't try and say that those, condemnation, those accusations were false. He didn't do that because they were true. And Satan has a strong case for the accusation. Joshua stood clothed with filthy garments, verse 3. With nothing but guilt and shame to offer as evidence of his acquittal. This is kind of jarring. Don't you think? It's kind of jarring that Joshua, a high priest, a man of God, so to speak, would come here and have nothing to offer God but filthy garments. He's the high priest of Israel, and yet he's dressed in these tattered robes. And he stands there before the magistrate of heaven as blameworthy. And more than that, these filthy garments, that, that has the idea of these garments are just soiled with excrement. They're covered in dung. They smell awful. So the idea of that is, it's as if Joshua has come into the courtroom already defiled. He's automatically defiled as soon as he walks in because it goes before him. <laughs> the odor of sin goes before him because he's covered with soiled uh, excrement-soiled garments. He has blood on his hands before he even steps into the courtroom and before the even trial even begins. And the truth of that is, is that there's ample evidence in the course of one day for Satan to accuse us and condemn us forever. That's what's tough. Each and every day we have to remember that the gospel saves us. Otherwise we will be in despair just like this because Satan will try and get you despairing because he knows that you stumble often. I've already stumbled this morning, and I haven't even gotten started yet. <laughs> Every day is like that. Spurgeon says this, If the old accuser wants reasons for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wishes, and continue to accuse us as long as he pleases, for we are altogether as an unclean thing. Certainly, then, we have sins and shortcomings enough to be accused and so, uh, accused by Satan till the day Christ returns. But despite all that, despite that, that Joshua stands there as completely, fully guilty, completely deserving of what Satan was bringing before the Lord, completely deserving of the condemnation, watch what God, God does. What does the Lord do? What does he do with this vile criminal standing before him? What does he do with this sinner? 
I would say exactly what he always does with those who are most aware of how desperate they are for salvation, with those who have nowhere else to turn. He gives them grace. Verse 2 again, And the Lord Jesus said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Verse 4, And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. Jesus rebukes the adversary's indictment. He just rules Satan's charges as inadmissible right before he even finishes the remnant, right before he even starts them. The malice of Satan stands no chance against the mercy of God. The Lord Jesus rules Satan's charges inadmissible, declaring Joshua's position to be as one free from condemnation. Just like in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus free from condemnation. And more than that, the Lord commands, excuse me, <clears throat> the angels to remove the filthy garments from him, thereby removing Joshua's iniquity. And to clothe Joshua in what it says, change of raiment, which literally means pure vestments. He was clothed in white robes. This change of garments exemplifies the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness of our sins. And more than that, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's what salvation is. It's not just removal of your sin. It's imputation of Jesus' righteousness on you. It's His righteousness to the law given to your account. And surely, if, if Joshua had tried to win it on his own, if Joshua had tried to go in there and depend it on his own faithfulness, he would have been convicted long before now. But no, he comes guilty as he is, and he receives Jesus' righteousness. Nothing is said here. Notice this also. Nothing is said here of trying to wash his old stuff. Nothing is said here. Just take that off and try and get off all the excrement and try and make it look nice again, and then you can have it back. Or just, just try and mend up where all the holes are, mend up where it all, it's all tattered and frayed, and it's, it's not very good anymore. No. He takes it away, and he gives you new clothes. New garments. The Lord didn't command angels to wash these soiled rags, but to take away the filthy garments. So there, Joshua stands to represent Israel. He's the high priest, and he represents the people of God. And he stands there free from condemnation. <clears throat> Joshua and Israel's right standing is restored. The charges of Satan are left utterly powerless against the grace of God. That's what God was trying to show Zechariah through this vision. That this is what he's going to do, and this is how he's going to do it. But more than that, I think Joshua serves to represent us. He likewise represents all the people of God who stand before the Heavenly Father in their sins. Rightly accused, by the way, but also graciously acquitted because of the Lord Jesus. Guilty as we are, we tremble before the bar of God with nothing to stand or rely on of our own. And in the same way that Joshua was, we stand before the bar of God guilty, clothed in filthy garments, robes soiled with excrement that are lives with, filled with sin. 
And we are not only covered in filth, but just as these robes imply, we have the stench of corruption. It just goes before us. The odor of sin goes before us, incriminating us before we are even on trial. And as we stand before God, we have nothing that we can say or do that can clear our name. That's your stance. That's your place before God. We can give nothing to God to secure this justification, to secure this absolution. As it says in Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. At the table of God's salvation, as it were, We have nothing to offer. One preacher said this way, We have nothing to offer in salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. No obedience or merit of our own is acceptable unto God. It's to the empty-handed beggar that this salvation comes, not the ones who are slaving after self-righteousness. And the moment that you believe that this justification, that what happens here, that this clothing of white robes is something that you can win, something that you can earn, something that you can put on like a green jacket, you void all that Jesus came to do. Remember the words of Paul to the Galatians in Galatians 2.21? He says this, I do not frustrate or nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Literally, he's saying that if I were trying to win the righteousness of the law by my own efforts, then Christ died for no purpose. You're spitting in the face of what Jesus did if you try and win what Jesus is trying to give you. If you're trying to make it into a green jacket that you're trying to earn instead of a white robe that he's giving you. And there's the truth that God's justification of sinners isn't a green jacket you earn. It's a white robe that's freely given Freely given, regardless of how hard you try. And I'm, I'm, I'm learning this myself, that all my efforts in this pursuit of righteousness, this, this pursuit of God, is that I still remain sinful. I still remain filthy. Because my heart is just soiled with sin. You're, you're sinners by birth. You don't become sinners. You're sinners as soon as you are born. And you're soiled with sin from the very first breath. And you can't wash these garments. Like what I was saying, you can't try and wash yourself clean. You can't try and make yourselves pure. The only resolve, the only resort we have is to turn to Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 12, the author and finisher of our faith, who clothes you with His righteousness. Listen to Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh herself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. That's what Jesus is giving to you. Garments of salvation that are put onto you freely as a gift. Our advocate, therefore, never ceases to intercede for you. Jesus is your advocate. He's your attorney. In this, in this courtroom of heaven, Jesus is your attorney. He is defending you. He is interceding for you. And only that, He clothes you in robes which we can never win or fabricate. Spurgeon says it this way, 
Foul and filthy as you are, there is only one voice that can speak and make you clean. That is the voice of Jesus, which says in verse 4, Take away the filthy garments from him. I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. See, once Jesus clothes you in this change of raiment, He is literally clothing you in His white robes. So therefore, when God sees you, He no longer sees you in your sin. He sees His Son. Because guess what? Your sin was nailed to the cross. Listen to Colossians 2, verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's what Jesus has done for you. So we're no longer seen as sinners, we're seen as saints. We're no longer ever have to fear Satan's accusations, because just as Joshua stood in the place of Israel, so does Jesus stand in our place. The gospel declares that our advocate, our attorney, is not only pleading for us, he becomes our substitute. Our advocate becomes our substitute, absorbing and absolving all of our condemnation. So you could say this, a greater high priest than Joshua has come, and he has interceded for you on your behalf. And he presents a blameless, a righteous, a perfect pardon. Not one that's filled with filthy garments. He presents one as if he's a spotless lamb. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because a more perfect high priest has has stood in our place, that's why we have boldness. Because Jesus, our high priest, has taken our guilt. So when Satan accuses, Jesus, our advocate, is going to plead on our behalf. Jesus pleads, Excuse me. Our heavenly attorney and our mediator pleads for us. Spurgeon says, The voice which silenced your cruel foe is the voice that rolls the stars along against which nothing can stand. See, once you're saved, you stand before a holy and righteous judge with with the title, No Condemnation. Because the magistrate has banged the gavel, the sentence has been given, and no condemnation is the verdict, and no separation is the decree. Because your debt has been canceled, and your pardon has been paid in full, and the appeasement of our sins has been perfectly supplied by our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says here, the angel of the Lord. 1 John 2, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's Jesus Christ, your advocate. The mercy of our Father, of Jesus, is bestowed minus our merit. 
The intercession of Christ is greater than any indictment which the devil can bring. As I said before, the malice of Satan stands no chance against the mercy of God. The guilt and pollution of sin is replaced by the holiness and purity of Christ. So now when God sees you, He sees His Son. Revelation 7, verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's what the Father gave to Joshua. That's what Jesus gives to you. White robes washed in His blood, the blood that He shed on the cross. So we're arrayed in Jesus' garments, in Jesus' robes of righteousness. Our rebellious account is cleared and we're given Christ's righteous one. So, therefore, we are seen as righteous. He takes our iniquity and He gives us His innocence. This is what Jesus was trying to establish. This is what Jesus was coming to do. This was the message that He was coming to preach. Remember in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set them at liberty which are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This is what He was coming to do, to make the guilty acquitted, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to bring the lost home, and to make the sinner righteous. To bring you home. And what Christ does with Joshua, as He did here, clothing him in change of raiment, in pure vestments, is what He does with all sinners. And that's bestow the gospel to them. He gives them the gospel which resurrects, restores, and redeems them from eternal condemnation. You see, this is the message of this story. That we are cleared because Christ bore our condemnation for us on the cross. We are acquitted from those accusations because Jesus took God's wrath for us. The Lord Jesus is the one and the only one who accomplishes and secures this justification for us. We are pardoned because of the purity of Christ. Our salvation and our redemption can't be won through human effort. There's no green jacket of salvation to be won. It's a white robe that you are given through the gospel. So even though you you still remain sinful while you're here on this earth... We still struggle and battle and toil with this old nature. When God sees you, He sees His Son. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that He has saved you from your sins, He sees His Son in your place. And that is so uplifting. Because there's a great little quote from Martin Luther. Because he was saying, it basically comes from the context of Satan is tempting you. And he's tempting you, as he was here, to tempt you to disbelieve the gospel. To disbelieve what Jesus has come to do for you. And listen, this is what you can say to Satan. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. 
You can throw Satan's accusations back in his face, saying, yeah, that's true, but Jesus has took my place for me. Yeah, that's true, I'm a sinner, I still struggle, but Jesus has taken my place for me. He's my advocate, and he became my substitute, and he's the one that I serve. You know, there's a great little hymn that I don't think anyone, maybe you might be familiar with it, but it's a really obscure hymn, and you can't find it in any modern hymnals. It's called, What Though the Accuser Roar. Have you heard of that before? Probably not. It's by an old writer. His name is Samuel Gandy, and it has just fantastic words. Just absolutely fantastic words of this hymn. I've only heard a few modern versions of it, but the, the real, the, the, I've never heard the hymn in its original form. But the words go something like this. What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, we know them well in thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Sin, Satan, death appear to harass and appall, yet since the gracious Lord is near, backward they go and fall. His be the victor's name, who fought our fight along. Triumphant saints, no honor claim. His conquest was their own. By weakness and defeat he won the mead and crown, trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell and hell laid low, made sin he sin or through, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. That's what Jesus did for you. His be the victor's name. He has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave for you. What though the vile accuser wore, he can tell you of thousands of sins and sins that you haven't even committed yet. You can say, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he finds none. Because your account is clean. You are garbed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. And that's why you can rejoice. That's why we come to a place like this in this church to rejoice that Jesus has done this for us. This is why we are here. And this is why we serve and praise the Lord. Let's pray.